Wendy, thank you, and thank each of you for this opportunity. I'm, I'm honored to be able to sit with you here on this evening. My hope was, I know that I was asked to come and to present. Um, I hope that we can have more conversation than, than that of a presentation. So what I'd like to do is just maybe provide a few terse comments with regards to some of the questions that were sent to me. Uh, and if I can, let me put a backdrop before I answer three questions that were, that were uh, posed to me. The backdrop is, is this, is that <clears throat> I maintain that our greatest attribute is our diversity. Um, our greatest advantage is our unity. And our greatest attainment is that of our humanity. Once again, our greatest attribute is our diversity. Our greatest advantage is our unity. And our greatest attainment is that of our humanity. I like that to be the backdrop because whatever I say here on tonight, I want you to know what motivates uh, my responses. It's, it's this whole matter of, of, of diversity, unity, humanity, and how they work uh, to, to serve as our greatest attributes our advantages and our attainment. The first question that was posed to me is, who does the political system work for? Or who does it not work for? Uh, I wrote back to Wendy and I asked her, what exactly are you meaning by politics? Because I could hear that in a very general way, but I could also consider that as it relates to the many different systems that contribute to uh, the quality or lack of quality of life that impacts the lives of persons. Are we speaking about systems such as uh, housing, um, education? Um, are, we, are we talking about health uh, kind of systems? Are we, are we speaking about systems that have to do with employment and so forth? Um, I would say that the political system works for, um, works more for persons uh, with affluence in the areas of power and money. Now, I don't just make a blanket statement uh, in that way. I would suggest there are varying degrees of how it works for persons and how it does not work for persons. If I were to speak specifically from the perspective of, of an African American, I would tend to say that unfortunately the political system uh, has not worked or at least has oftentimes been antagonistic to African Americans. Why do I say this? 
it's because of the fact I'm not sure, even to this day, if America knows what it wants to do with African Americans. Um, and, and I think it just had a whole lot to do with how African Americans come about. That is, is not by virtue of immigration, but by virtue of, of, of really just a, a, a being forced to a new land. And basically, African Americans represent uh, descendants of African slaves who were born here in America. And Africans were brought to this country basically uh, to fulfill a need, uh, which was to work a system and to provide uh, a major economy or a significant portion of the economy for the colonies at the time, but what has come to be the states overall. When the question was forced, and I'm not even sure if I can really say that it was a moral question that the country was faced with, but that was how it's shaped in history books, that there's, there's a moral question that comes up. How can America continue with this thing called slavery, which ultimately leads to uh, that of the Civil War? And while there is an emancipation that takes place and a reconstruction period, it's not long before we move into a place where uh, Jim Crow laws are put in place, which in a sense intend to do almost the same thing that the slavery had done beforehand. But just a different, just a different type of slavery, very much connected oftentimes uh, with debts that were associated with um, illegal actions that supposedly uh, African slaves had engaged in. You come through the Jim Crow era and you get into the 60s, and yes, there's the civil rights movements that come forth that uh, change some legislation, but even though legislation has changed, the lives of black folks don't change. All right, and that's one of the things that uh, Martin King was saying right before uh, he was assassinated, and many would suggest that this was a major reason why he was assassinated. Uh, he said to many of his advisors in some of his last days, he said, I fear that I've led my people into a burning building. And what he meant by that was, was that here it is that we've gone through these various marches, these protests that have led to the changing of legislation and so forth. But he says, America has not had to really spend one dollar to change the legislation. And they are able to change the legislation without changing the environment or how the persons are approached or dealt with. Well, we have a reprieve for a little bit, but it appears now 
that we have this prison industrial complex and how much one agrees with that or not um, the, the the numbers the numbers are scary when one considers the number of African Americans that are in prison in no way does it suggest that every one of them are innocent at all but one has to wonder how is it that you could have that many uh, African Americans that are locked up and just on a daily basis one could go down to the court and you will see a room of 80 to 90 people of color generally a handful of whites that oftentimes have lawyers with them that are able to generally get their defendants uh, exonerated whereas a lot of the blacks that are there because they don't have the representation and oftentimes don't have the money either um, many of them are jailed and when you want to really talk about where you have a real large concentration of blacks in the prison system, it's not just at the penitentiary level, but where it's really glaring is when you look at the jail of where you have um, persons who are basically waiting to be tried and ultimately farmed out to, to some prison. So, when we talk about who does politics work for, if I were to speak, and I, and I really only feel like I'm able to really speak good from the African-American perspective, the political system has not worked good for us. And, I, and again, I go back to it hasn't worked because America doesn't know what to do with us. when you brought persons over for a specific reason, what happens now when you want to change that relationship? It's, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult thing to do. And whether it's intentional or it's not intentional, I think it's hard to unfortunately speak about African Americans without somewhere lurking in our memory or right before us that there's a strained relationship here that has never gotten to a point of conciliation. So when I hear persons ask me to come and talk with them about reconciliation, I ask how can we even talk about reconciliation? Has there ever been a conciliation? I'm not sure if it has been. I'd like for someone to tell me at what point in history has there really been a conciliation uh, where there has truly been uh, a, level, a level playing field. So that's the way that I would respond to, to question one. Question two uh, asks what should be said or what is being said or not being said within the context of the church. Um, I would maybe change that a little bit, not just what is being said or not being said, what is being done and what's not being done. 
the, the, the church, I believe there have been certain movements within the church that have tried to take accountability for some of the horrors that have taken place in this country, not just with regards to African Americans, but especially when you start talking about poverty and how poverty is created amongst people of all colors. Um, it's interesting that the church has been quite silent with regards to poverty, especially at the systemic level. The church has sought to provide a lot of charity pieces, which I consider to be immediate needs where the church have tried to address, but the, the, the church has not taken really the accountability uh, and been accountable to really be a voice that speaks on behalf of the poor, and I'm not sure how we can reconcile that with not only the biblical witness, but the so-called Christian witness. Um, not only is there a problem with accountability within the church, I believe there has been a challenge with regards to the integrity of the church. Can the church or could the church be trusted to be an advocate for those who were unable to speak for themselves? From my experience, the church... Uh, has been inconsistent with, uh, with being that voice. And because of that, the church has not necessarily been a trusted source for really trying to address uh, things that, that, that really impact the lives of people. You know, take for instance, um, when there was a real push for integrating the schools and so forth, right? Here in the greater Kansas City area, I'm sure I'm not telling you all anything you don't know, but the mass exodus of white flight that took place from the inner city indirect, as a direct response to the fact that whites didn't want their kids to go to school with blacks in city. They're in the same classroom. There was an intentional exodus and the government, politics, helped to pay for that exodus. You know how they did that? Highways were put in place in order to really facilitate traffic going into suburban areas or suburban areas that were being created. If that was not enough, I mean, the redlining, the blockbusting that took place uh, where you have private real estate going hand in hand uh, with uh, governmental uh, pieces, what is now HUD, would have been beforehand. I mean, the combination of those two working together to actually create segregated spaces is basically what we're confronted with to this day in Kansas City. It's no accident, the living patterns and where persons live. We hear a lot about the truce barrier and east of truce versus west of truce. That's not by accident. That was by, that was by design. And there were many churches that were involved in that. 
And very few churches said anything about that. All right? Um, you know, so I think that if the church, uh, if we could really talk about accountability, integrity issues, and taking responsibility for our parts, and when I say that, uh, I, please, even though I spoke from the vantage point of African Americans beforehand, this issue here is really not just driven by color. This issue, for me, is driven more so by the whole matter of poverty and the, uh, and the amount of poverty that we have uh, in this city and all over this, this country. Um, I think the last question had to do with, since we are the political process, uh, how can we really make a difference when you have so much systemic evil? Well, I think that if the church really seeks to be the church, and I'm sure that we could debate that whole matter of what exactly is the church, uh, um, but my thought would be is that if the church is really going to be the church, the only way that that can happen is is that the church must be willing to do at least three things that we're trying our best to do at Metropolitan. We're trying to live into our name. Our name Metro, Metro meaning to kind of transport or uh, transit system. Politan from the Greek term police, which means city literally transporting through a city metropolitan has to do with and we talk about moving faith through the city how can we do that and how can we really be a church uh, that's not only in the heart of the city but to be a church that truly has a heart for the city we've decided that the only way that we can do that is not going in to the city like gangbusters feeling as if we bring all the answers. What we need to do is that we need to first engage the city. And what we mean by engaging the city is letting the city know this is who we are and we would like for you to take note of us just like we are taking note of you. Engagement needs to move to the whole matter of connection. That is, how do we connect? If we can first make an engagement, next thing is how do we, how do we connect? I remember when I was trying to, um, for lack of a better word, make a move on my wife presently. <laughs> when I when I was when I was really trying to get her attention and get her to notice me, I had to have an engagement strategy. It wasn't enough for me just to be in the same room with her. I didn't want to just be present. I wanted her to know I was there, and I wanted her to know I knew she was there. I wonder sometimes are churches satisfied with just being present? Or do we really desire a relationship with the cities that we are that we are a part of. But after I got her attention, I wanted to make some kind of connection. I wanted it to go to the next step. 
not just this is who I am and I know you're there, but I wanted some kind of relationship. I wanted a relationship that respected her presence and she respects my presence and we find what we have in common. And I believe that uh, what we can do as a church is to engage, really to engage the city because to engage the city is to engage the systems that compose the city. And to seek to try to make a connection. Now that doesn't mean that we have to compromise who we are we just need to make a connection. I'm sure that there are some things that we have in common. Finally, um, here's where we may really uh, have a discussion with regards to a theological discussion. I'm coming to believe that the church is what evolves from the engagement and connection process. What I mean by that is, is that we don't really go in as the church. We go in as a missional adventure. We, we go in as, a, as some kind of missional strategy. Uh, we, we have a mission. We're trying to engage with the city. We're trying to connect with the city. But the church is what evolves from that. And I believe that that's one of the ways that we could seriously talk about uh, engaging these systemic, uh, these systems that are evil in the sense that they help to promote poverty, they help to promote uh, separation or segregation, they help to promote uh, uh, racism and, and these huge gaps between the haves and the have-nots. That, that, those would just be some of my informal remarks. So, so I'd, be, I'd be interested in hearing from you all any reactions to what I've said, but also I'm interested in hearing some of the conclusions that you have begun to draw for those of you that have been a part of these discussions over, over the past few weeks. So if you don't if you don't mind, I'd like if we could begin to talk and maybe I can say a little bit more that, that way. Any reactions? Yes. Oh, so you, you talked about the incarceration problem. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious as to how you feel that uh, Attorney General Holder's uh, calling out this problem has made any difference at all? Or do you, or maybe said another way, do you see ways uh, that the church might engage in that particular uh, problem? Yeah. Well, personally, I was, uh, I was appreciative of him, of him calling it out. When I look back over it, I, I'm not so sure that it was the best political strategy because I think it has been the cause for more inflammatory type of conversations as opposed to really trying to move to address this. Um, it doesn't make a difference that you just had a groundbreaking work that uh, Michelle Alexander had, had done with the prison industrial complex 
uh, and really dealing with that. And it didn't make a difference that, I mean, you had some very clear and glaring numbers here. Um, it was fine, I think, as long as it was being done at that level. At the level when it was done at this very national political level, uh, again, I think it was necessary for it to come out. I'm not so sure, though, that it, it came out in the best way. I'm not sure that they really strategized in the way that they should have. Um, so that, that's how I feel about his statements. Um, what, can, what can the church about it. I think the church has to seriously um, challenge a lot of what's going on in the in the justice in the area of the justice system and and the criminal system. Um, I think we really have to look at some of the practices. Now, here's what's generally always brought up. You know, and especially as it relates to um, the Black Lives Matter movement, which has always caused real challenges for persons, and they just get frustrated within the Black Lives Matter movement. Every time that's dealt with what is constantly brought up, why do you not have these protests when you have this crime taking place in black neighborhoods and you have the amount of black on black crime. The reason why I understand Black Lives Matter to get really upset with that is because the response is we're not saying that's not a bad issue. That is an issue that needs to be addressed and guess what? Whether you believe it or not there are community groups that are solely trying to address that. Black Lives Matter says, we're not saying that's not an issue. That's just not our issue that we're dealing with. The issue that we're dealing with specifically has to do with the engagement of law enforcement with black communities and how it seems as if oftentimes those engagements become very volatile and oftentimes uh, volatile from the point of view of, of law enforcement uh, uh, personnel. You know, my thought is, is this, is that the, the church has an opportunity here to call out a system that tries to lock up its problems as opposed to dealing with its problems. A lot of people who are in prison don't need to be in prison. You have homelessness oftentimes that have led to being pers persons being jailed. Mental illness oftentimes has, has led to persons being jailed. You know, you, you, you have, you have kind of this pipeline from this juvenile delinquency into the prisons themselves. There are violent offenders that need to be in prison. And absolutely, the black community has its share that needs to be addressed. But many of the blacks that are in prison right now 
have so much to do more so with the drug, drugs. And when we consider that, how is it that we can have that number of blacks being locked up when the persons who get it into the community, into the black community, somehow they are never locked up. Somehow never. I remember when I was speaking with Chief Forte and he was asking me, Reverend Hartsfield, can you really kind of begin to talk with the community, let them know that we're going to be stopping more and more cars because we really want to try to get a lot of these illegal guns off the street, and we're all for that. Um, I, just, I just said to him, I said, Chief Forte, I'm all for that. We're all for that. We will support you in that, but we will support you in that if you will also practice the same thing on those who get the number of guns into our communities. Wherever one stands with, however one felt about Malcolm X, Malcolm X seemed to have his finger on something very clear. He said, there's no way that you can have the amount of guns, drugs, and whatever else that you have going on, oftentimes in the black community, without some help from law enforcement. You can't traffic that much. Especially since... Let's just take, for example, the East of Truce. East of Truce, you have many more police that are in place. East of Truce, so you begin to ask the question, how can you get the number of guns into the area, as well as how can you have uh, the amount of drugs that are circulating in the community if you have all of these polices, I mean, where I live, where I live, uh, which is two blocks from the church, uh, 31st and Garfield, whatever, it's getting a little bit better now, and I attribute a lot of that having to do with the new crime patrol piece that has been built. But, you know, I said to persons, when I first came, I've always lived in the city, and basically the regular sounds of the city are sirens and gunshots. You hear it all night long. Maybe what's so tragic about it is, is I mean, you hear it on the hour. Going every hour, it, it never stops. What's tragic about it is, is that somehow I've learned to sleep through that. But you not only hear guns or gunfire and sirens you hear all kinds of helicopters flying over. All right. You begin to wonder how can you have so much action taking place in an area that is so heavily patrolled. So I, I believe that the church, um, the, the, the church needs to begin to ask some questions about this, you know, not going in necessarily making the indictments, just asking, how can this be? All right. Anyone else? Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Mm. 
prisons, and it, it, it seemed to me to be uh, a small answer to a large question and came too late and too slow, and I'm wondering what you thought about yeah, I agree with you. I think it is a small response to a huge, uh, to a huge issue. My question is, is can we not just kind of change who's controlling them, but can we truly reduce the number of prisons? I mean, um, there seems to still be a plan, or quite a few plans, for the building of more prisons. I, for me, I don't understand how more prisons are going to provide any kind of solution. I don't care whose control it's under. In the long run, I don't think it does anything good for America. Yes. Was never really a war on drugs. Yes. Uh, are you willing to speak on that? Well, I I think she made the case, and I'm in agreement with her. I'm glad that she was able to do it because a lot of us had been trying to say it beforehand. We just could not articulate it the way that the way that she did. Um, when you consider how blacks have been locked up for drugs as opposed to others. There's a real, there's a real, real difference, all right? It's a shame the number of blacks that are in jail for life for certain drug charges. That if it would not have been crack cocaine, in most instances. Probably there would have been a very different outcome if it would have been a different color of person and a different drug in place. You probably would not have seen the number of people that have been locked up as a result of it. So to me, the war on drugs just became a way to the prison industrial complex coming about, all right? The war on drugs provided the clientele for the prisons. If you keep building them, you've got to put people in there. I mean, don't you? I mean, I, I, I'm just wondering, I mean, it, it's not going to be able to stay open if you don't put someone in it, and and, I, and I'm not sure if I want to just make this bold statement, but I would suggest that poor people have been targeted oftentimes, especially in neighborhoods where there's concentrated poverty, that oftentimes I believe that they have been targeted to be the ultimate clientele. I mean, I don't... I don't think it's by accident that you have some of the prisons being built upon the notion of who can read at a certain level. That is, if, if kids weren't reading by a certain age, second or third grade or whatever, 
many persons had already begun to build prisons based off the fact that there's a great probability that those kids will ultimately be the clients. That was their business model. Yes, yes. And so um, I, I would agree. I, I would agree that the war on drugs really just helped to provide or really give away to provide the clientele for the prisons that we have in place. Well, ironically, yeah. mm -hmm. many of the prisons where they're located in rural areas and small towns, that becomes a big part of their economy. Sure it does. Again, for very poor, impoverished people in that rural area yeah. that aren't black. Right. But you know what? We've now created a real problem for ourselves because if we're going to really do something about it, that is really do something about it, which to me is stop building the prisons and deal with the social issues that are before us. If you really do that, can this country afford to lose an industry like prison? I mean, do you know how many small businesses probably immediately go out of business? So we're, we're, in a, we're in an awful place here because it's almost as if our hands are tied. That is, if we're going to keep people and businesses alive and people in jobs and things like that, we're going to have to keep the prison industrial complex going. Now, maybe it might make some persons feel better that it's not some of the private ownership is going away and we're going to bring in uh, the feds on it. To me, that doesn't mean anything because feds and private industry historically have done some awful things together. And that's what I was trying to suggest about the segregated housing. Here, you couldn't have had it with, with just private real estate. It was private real estate and government. That, that made this possible. Many of those policies birthed right here in Kansas? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we used to refer to corrections institutions. Mm. And uh, I think we sort of quit using that term because we realized we weren't doing it. So to me, when, you, when, you, when I think about the church being involved, what is corrections? What, how, do you, how do you do that? Uh, I don't have that answer. It just... It was an aspiration, I think, 30 years ago, when that term started being used, maybe 40. And now, we just don't think it can be done. Okay, yeah. So that, to, to me, that's a place where the church might find something to hold on. Yeah, we might just want to ask what's being corrected. Absolutely. And I think that's even more so emphasized like, from all the shootings, especially this summer. Mm -hmm. um, so what would you think steps would look like to help towards solving that and like, moving towards not making it segregated as much anymore? Right, right. Well, um, 
can I begin by saying to you that I, I think I'm struggling as much as you are with that. I, I don't want to pretend as if I know the answer to that. We have been intentionally for years now at the church really trying to move towards an integrate, in, integrated church. Metropolitan is a, a predominantly African-American church that's 121 years old, all right? And I can say that at least for the past 15 years that we've made concerted efforts to really try to reach out to others with um, minimal success, all right? Here's, here's one thing that we are really seeking to do is that we're trying to challenge, we're trying to challenge persons who can to move back into the city. And we're not just doing that with blacks. We are trying to do it with all. And what we're trying to create is a pioneering movement. Because oftentimes when you ask persons to move back into uh, inner city areas, like third district, like fifth district, uh, one of the first things that comes up that people say, well, I'll come when, when there's a grocery store there, when there's a good school that comes in place and so forth. There have to be certain things before we're going to move back there. Well, the problem with that is, is that that's not going to happen, not in those areas. So what we need are some folks with pioneering mentalities. And we come in and we see the inner city as a frontier and not a frontier that is meant to displace persons that are presently living there. But can we give a chance to something that we've tried to do or that supposedly this country was, has been trying to do for at least the past 50 years? And that is to really get serious about integration. There was some, I was, I was speaking with some, some business persons and um, I, I, I hate sometimes having the reputation of being one that is a, a complainer because I, I try my best not to do that and I get the feeling that some well, actually, it's been stated about me in the newspaper as being rabble-rouser and things like that and so forth. Um, but some business developers just said, Reverend Hartsfield, what is it that you want? Just tell us what you want. So, and I could, I could really hear the frustration in their voice, so I gave it back to them with the same frustration they gave me. They said, Reverend Hartsfield, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? I said, this is what I want. I want you all to come and live with us. I don't, we don't need you to do something remotely. Invest in the community, not just because you're going to try to make a profit and exploit, make money, and suck it out of the community. Now, come and live with us. I mean... Does, does anybody think that there's something wrong with the fact that in the third district, which is made up of approximately 80,000 people, that you can't find more than four banks? 
but you have multiple payday lenders. And basically payday lending has, has almost functioned like a banking system. Where I live, I mean, the grocery stores just now getting one in the past five years with an Aldi's that is there and slated to be one on Linwood now after all this time. Um, you know, and you know how people have been doing their grocery shopping? They use convenience stores. And they're just being exploited all over the place. So I guess my major response to that would be is that it's not going to happen just at the level of a church trying to attract people to come to church. It has to be more than just a driving in for a Sunday. Can we really have a community that is truly an integrated community? Can whites come and live with blacks now for once, as opposed to blacks, affluent blacks chasing whites all over the city because for some reason in the mind of certain affluent blacks that to live where whites live is to have arrived in, in some kind of way. My thought is, is that why do we need to keep going there? Why can we not have whites come and invest back in some communities where there is uh, a black presence and not just a black presence that is made up of renters and so forth and low income but a black presence that controls a significant portion of businesses that are there where we share this as opposed to it always being lopsided. That to me only takes place with a pioneering effort. It has to be intentional. Yes, yes, sir. Um, so obviously I don't have any experience mm -hmm. being an African American, mm -hmm. um, but some experiences that I do have I grew up in a small community. Yes. And as you know, growing up in a small community, everybody knows everybody. Yes. Um, so, in growing up in this small community, um, my grandfather was a higher person, I guess, in the community. Mm -hmm. My grandma was um, in the um, government. Mm -hmm. high. Um, but my dad and my mom didn't reflect, I guess, the same professionalism, you might say, mm -hmm. as, as their parents. Mm -hmm. um, lived on the bad part of town, mm -hmm. grew up, you know, did a lot of things that they probably shouldn't have. And I noticed that uh, growing up that people looked at me mm -hmm. as a direct reflection of who my parents were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I can relate yes. um, a little bit to maybe that stigmatism yes. on how African-Americans um, feel mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, to a certain degree, I guess, because I obviously, like I said, I'm not African-American. Mm -hmm. um, and I carried that burden with me for a long time because I guess, you know, I felt like people looked at me differently and I internalized that. And I noticed that in my life as I grew, um, I was headed maybe in a direction I shouldn't have been going. Yes. And it affected mm -hmm. me. Yes, yes. Um, and it wasn't until, oh, probably... 37 now, probably about till 28, I realized that, hey, you know what, I have, I have to shed that mm -hmm. um, because I'm my own person. Um, I'm a, I have to form my own identity. Mm -hmm. And I found it in Christ. All right. 
Um, and I, I guess my question is, do you feel like, when you were talking earlier that about where we were in the 50s and the 60s, mm-hmm. that some of the African-American communities take that mindset and feel that white folk look at them, I guess, with prejudice and all that, when mm-hmm. maybe that isn't what we're doing, but maybe that's just internal life mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. African-American community? Yeah. Um, I would say... I would say yes to a certain part of that, and I, um, but I think that there is a justified amount of that mm-hmm. on the part of, of blacks, and it's not just because, uh, well, let me rephrase that, it's justified because they have seen historically and what continues to happen. No, 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 no. It just talks about like um, the family unit mm-hmm. and basically that's kind of where a lot of stuff starts. Sure. And, sure. sure. you know, I know that yeah. I personally suffered, I mean, Mm-hmm. a lot just because my family unit was dysfunctional. Right, right. Um, you know, my mom's been married two times, my right. dad's married twice, drugs, alcohol, lots of lots of different things going on that, you right. know, probably more privileged people wouldn't have to go through. Well, I'm not so sure if if that's necessarily the case. Let me Let me just say to you, because I don't want it to seem as if I'm excusing certain things that may take place in not only black community, any community, we have responsibilities that we're supposed to take part in. But when you begin to look at groups like African Americans and not just with them, but when you look at them in their history, there have been on the part of others systematic things that have been done to not only bring a stigma, but to cause dysfunction. You have a history of black families being broken up before they started doing it on their own. Okay, I mean, you've, you, you've had a systematic piece that has been in place that has disinvested or sucked basically people and money out of a public school system and then expect this system now to function at the level of some other systems, which is, which is unreasonable. So when I say to you that, yes, maybe there are overreactions sometimes on the part of blacks, there's a lot that's justified when we look and even though whites may not say it to our face, what you do speaks volumes. You know, so for me, when I sit in uh, meetings and, you know, and I, you know, the big thing now amongst some whites is to talk about white privilege. I hear that, well, personally, I, I really don't need to come to the table to talk with you about white privilege. If you need a cathartic experience and need to get something out or whatever, maybe that's something you need to do. My question is, 
when are you going to get ready to share the privilege? Because we can talk about it all day long. And you can admit it and never do anything about it. Yes, okay. Okay, sorry. Two more questions. Two more questions. Well, I want to honor Dr. Hart's question. I was wondering if you'd be willing to close with the parable of the river that you shared with Nick and I. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, all right. Yes. All right. Okay. trying to say to that it just exacerbated supposedly what was trying to be fixed what was trying to be fixed was we already had an issue with segregation all right and the segregation was leading to unequal living in certain neighborhoods when there was a real push to move towards integration and it became law at that point Whites who made the first flight, blacks, affluent blacks took flight after that. But white flight took place first. And it was a direct response to not wanting to integrate. Okay? Now, how do you make sure that you can go into and have neighborhoods of your own? The only way that you can do that are by some very system, in some very systematic ways. One of the first things that was done was the whole matter of blockbusting, which was trying to make sure to get as many whites as possible out of the inner city. So how you blockbust, you essentially, you put an African-American family on a block with some whites, and all of a sudden, you'll see a response that takes place. You had redlining and covenants, housing covenants, that were developed in other parts of the city that were directly put in place so that certain folks would not be allowed. It wasn't just blacks, it was it had to do also, I mean, uh, Jews were a part of that. Right, yeah, uh, right. But then there was even still a question or concern in some of the housing covenants that you don't want Jews coming in and have too much money because they're going to take control. 
of everything. It was, it was amazing to see what were, was put in some of the housing covenants. So, you know, when, when we consider persons like J.C. Nichols and others and so forth, okay, I'm very thankful for the boulevards that he pushed in the city. But oh my goodness, I mean, J.C. Nichols was not just known here in Kansas City, or even, he spurred a movement over the nation. You know, and I can remember, it was like when I, when I grew up, I, I lived in two worlds. I lived in the inner city in the evening times, essentially. I went to school at an experimental school called Loretto Academy that was out on 124th and Warren L at the time. When I was going out there was when all of those things like Verona Hills and many others were starting to come about. It was nothing but woods when I first went out there and Nichols began to bring persons in and it was strictly, strictly white. It was, it was so much to the point that it, folks laugh at me now because my wife knows how to get around Kansas City better than I do. She's from, she's from New York. But when we moved back here, she learned quickly how to get around to places. And she's like, why don't you know how to get to these places and so forth? And I had to really think about it. I said, because I had only been to Waldo, the Waldo area, twice. All the way up until I was 20 years old. I'd only been to Westport three times. Two of the times my friends and I were asked by police to leave. So places that I take for granted, like coming here, <laughs> to come this far west, it would have been no. I, I couldn't, couldn't do that. And that was not something that was done by accident, that was by design. All right, and so between like private realtors like a Nichols and the help of governmental agencies and so forth, it was allowed to take place. This should have never been able to happen like this because the government had to facilitate this suburban living because folks couldn't get to what we consider to be suburbs now without some of the new highways being put in place and some of the incentives that were provided for developers of the area and so forth that came through the government. So that's, uh, I, I hope that helps to explain uh, a little bit more. And the thing that happens is, is that when you leave a community and you just have disinvested in it that long, we're not, we're not really innocent in this. We know what happens in communities, what we call ghettos. We've had a lot of experience. We know what ghettos are designed to do. Ghettos are designed to put people, a certain group of people, in a very small space do you know what happens when you pack people together and there's concentrated poverty? It doesn't have anything to do with the color of their skin. If you were to put whites in the same kind of setting, 
we might be talking about white on white crime. Okay, I'm supposed to tell the parable. Okay, and real quickly. Um, there's a parable that's told about uh, the difference between charity and justice. Some of you may know this. It was stated that in a small town where a fair was taking place, it was taking place um, parallel to a river uh, that ran on the outskirts of the city. And while the fair was going on, everybody was enjoying themselves. It was a very festive affair, and a scream rang out. People dropped everything, and they were trying to listen for where the scream was coming from, and the scream was coming from by the river. And they saw a woman screaming, and then they saw her jump into the river. It was not long before they noticed that she was jumping in the river to save a baby that was floating downstream. As soon as she grabbed hold to one baby, another baby started coming down the stream, and another person from the town ran and hopped in the water. And sure enough, when that baby was retrieved, another one came over and another and before you knew it knew it there were just people from the town goo gobs of them hopping in the water trying to save the babies there were a couple of people who decided let's go upstream they wanted to go upstream because they felt like if they could go upstream they could see who was dropping the babies and stop them The meaning of the story is supposed to be that when you talk about what charity is, charity is about dealing with the immediate need. The people jumping in the water to save the baby were acts of charity. But the problem that can happen is, is this is that if you spend all of your time trying to save the babies coming downstream, you're going to start to miss a lot of them. At some point, somebody has to decide to go upstream and begin to deal with this at a systemic level. What's causing this to happen? That's what justice is. Charity deals with the immediate need justice address systems is not that you're supposed to do one or the other you're supposed to do both and our churches have just been heavy on the charity end it's been tough for us getting to the justice portion is that it thank you thank you, thank you.